Hey, Danny, you know what's neat? <laughs> what? November. <laughs> neat. Let's start the show. podcast tonight's show we're recording this on the 4th of november this is a little bit late for halloween but we got some nice halloween topics tonight uh here we are 4th of november the year 2023 got a great free show today for to go do some brown news top story a little crank file we'll do some adulting we'll do a little bit of science hero of the week and we'll finish it off with some happy times i am your host with the most danny paul Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. I will be rocking the ones and twos today, and joining me in the Bob Media Studios is the Baron of Bourbon, the Kaiser of Cali, the Liege Lord of Loathe, Leon Coventry, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> How you doing, Leon? Danny. Um, awesome. I'm hopped up on sugar. Ooh. Um, I'm headed head first into a diabetic coma. <laughs> you know what? And... I'm excited. I wanted to pull the Jimmy Kimmel trick. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but your mom and I ate all your candy. Have you seen those? I, uh, they're I, priceless. I, I think I think Bell might just walk outside and light your car on fire. You no, there's no doubt there. about it. No, <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I'd have to sleep with one eye open if I pulled that trick. <laughs> Also joining me in the Bob Media Studios is the Maestro de Mexico, the Duke of the Desert, the Crown Prince of the Purple. The Midge is joining us tonight. Hey, where are the white women at? How you doing, Midge? Oh, I'm not too bad. Oh, that was convincing. Yep, yep. Fresh, 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 Give me, let's get to a shaka from the mic. Why don't we try that? Give me a shaka from the mic. Just give me about this, like right here. Just give me like this much. Right here? Yeah, you're too, you're too close. You're too close. Back I'm it up a little bit. Now. Yeah, right. there we go. There. Yeah. It's a sweet spot. That's fine. It's Goldilocks. Okay. It's like one finger doesn't work. Try two. No thumbs. No Don't thumbs. be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Mm. We're recording this on a Saturday. When have we ever done a show on a Saturday? I don't mm. think we have. You know what that signifies? Is that our life is becoming more and more boring. That's right. We could be out and about <laughs> on a Saturday, but here we are. <laughs> we used Should to be. be doing something exciting. Having a little brown and doing the news. Speaking of brown, what is your brown for this evening, boys? Well, I'll start. It's uh, in honor of neat November. I'm trying a new one tonight. Mm. I went over, uh, Triple B and I had a date night. And when we go on a date night, we go to the liquor store. Well done, sir. <laughs> yeah, we went to Total Wine, and I've never seen this. Walcott, have you ever seen this before? Yes. They had tons of it on the end caps, tons of it all over. I I don't get the feeling, by the way it was branded, that it's anything special, but it does uh, 
sit at 120 proof. I'm doing, doing the Rick House Revert Reserve tonight. Ooh. And it's good. It's not the best bourbon I've ever had, but it's also very fairly priced around $38. So, you busting out 120 proof for neat November? Well, I like to get fired up. You're an exciting I didn't man. have 130 proof. <laughs> You're an exciting man. What about you, Mitch? I am uh, rocking the the Ron Solera. I like this. Uh, this is a special special Bacardi uh, dark blend. In the uh, I don't know. This is it says eighteen seventy three on here. I don't know what that means. Oh, sounds fancy. It's a year. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a hundred and fifty years old, but uh, it's delicious. It's a little spicy. Ooh, I dig it. Spicy on a Saturday and mm-hmm. neat. I don't know that I've done rum neat very often. Spicy rum you can do neat. I don't know that I would oh, do yeah. like a Malibu yeah. or a coconut rum neat. That doesn't uh, that doesn't vibe. I mean, my hero, Captain Jack Sparrow, drinks it neat. So, why is all the rum gone? <laughs> so, I sent you guys a picture of this from from the Costco's. They have a little four pack of these little darling little bottles. That are, what do we say? They're 200 milliliters each. So you get 800 milliliters for 60 bucks. And the one that I am knocking out tonight is the Highland single malt aged 12 years. Well, and it is perfect for neat November. Well, that's cool because you get four different ones. That's right. It is neat. Neat. We are the knights that say neat. The neat <laughs> November. It's but a scratch. I saw that was that was my Halloween costume winner of the year. Somebody sent me a reel with the uh was it it could have been you, Danny. I don't even know. Where they they were up on top above their garage and doing the whole thing. Oh god, it was great. We've already got one. I don't think you'll be very keen because you'll see we've already got one. We've already got one. Oh, yes, very nice. <laughs> I told him we already got one. <laughs> your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. Now leave before I taunt you for a second time. Second time. All right, well, now we're talking about brown. Let's talk about brown. How you doing? Whiskey and whiskey. This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. Say, Holmes, uh, where they hiding the scotch? What about, um, brown? That's code for bourbon. Great stuff, this bourbon. Comes from a land called Kentucky. Talk about brown. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Scotch? Oh, yes, I, I think so. Can I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? Tonight's Talk About Brown is related to Halloween, although it is dated March 8th. 2021. This one comes to us from the Smithsonian Magazine. And it's a little misleading at first, but I promise you, we're going to get to Halloween eventually. It starts out, why did women stop dominating the beer industry? And the the strap line for this article is strict gender norms push them out of a centuries long tradition. Any guesses? Any guesses? Uh, Gender studies. Good guess. No. Good guess, Midge. Uh, everyone in control of Hollywood has a stick up their ass now. Also a good question. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. We're going to be talking about the origin of witches tonight. Witches. Ooh. 
capital W. Capital W. What do witches have to do with your favorite beer? When posed this question to students of American literature and culture classes, stunned silence or nervous laughs. The Sanderson sisters didn't chug down bottles of Sam Adams and Hocus Pocus, but the history of beer points to a not-so-magical legacy of transatlantic slander and gender roles. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you see, up until the 1500s, brewing was primarily women's work. That is, until a smear campaign accused women brewers of being witches. Much of the iconography we associate with witches today, from the pointy hat to the broom, may have emerged from their connection to female brewers. Brewster of which is the surname often given to ladies who brew beer. She's now, a witch! She's a witch! <laughs> what do we do with witches? Burn them! Burn them! <laughs> Humans have been drinking beer for almost 7,000 years, and the original brewers were women. From the Vikings to the Egyptians, women brewed beer, both for religious ceremonies and to make a practical calorie-rich beverage for the home. In fact, the nun Hildegard von Bingen who lived in modern-day Germany, famously wrote about hops in the 12th century and added the ingredient to her beer recipe. From the Stone Age to the 1700s, ale, and later beer, was a household staple for most families in England and other parts of Europe. The drink was an inexpensive way to consume and preserve grains. For the working class, beer provided an important source of nutrients, full of carbohydrates and proteins. Because the beverage was such a common part of the average person's diet, fermenting was, for many women, one of their normal household tasks. Boom. And then we gave them the right to vote. It all That's went right. to hell. That's right. Some enterprising women took this household skill to the marketplace and began selling their beer. Widows hmm. or unmarried women used their fermentation prowess to earn some extra money, while married women partnered with their husbands to run their beer business. So if you traveled back into the Middle Ages or the Renaissance and went to a market in England, you'd probably see an oddly familiar sight. Women wearing tall, pointy hats. In many instances, they'd be standing in front of gigantic cauldrons. These women were no witches. They were brewers. They wore the tall, pointy hats so that their customers could see them in the crowded marketplace. They transported their brew in cauldrons because they needed a large area to brew and serve. And they sold their beer out of stores, had cats not as demon familiars, but to keep the mice away from the grain. Some argue that iconography we associate with witches from the pointy hat to the cauldron originated from women working as master brewers. And what do you think the broom is for? To sweep up all the grain and to sweep away the rats that the cat did not take care of. That now, is fascinating. I am absolutely fascinated by this. Where did witches come from? Oh, it gets, they're all, yes, well, the Satan brew. So if you've ever heard of the term witches brew, that's where that comes from. Just Get as women were establishing their foothold in the beer markets of England, Ireland, and the rest of Europe, the Reformation began. The fundamentalist religious movement, which originated in the early 16th century, preached stricter gender norms and condemned witchcraft. See above, pilgrims. See above, Salem. See above, Halloween. See above, witches. And during this time of released, increased fundamentalist religious movement, male brewers saw an opportunity. To reduce their competition in the beer trade, these men accused female brewers of being witches and using their cauldrons to brew up magic potions instead of booze. Unfortunately, the rumors took hold. Over time, it became more dangerous for women to practice brewing and sell beer because they could be misidentified as witches. At the time, being accused of witchcraft wasn't just a social faux pas. It could result in death. 
Women accused of witchcraft were often ostracized in their communities, imprisoned, or even killed. Ain't this some bullshit? Yeah, gosh, I wish I had a time. This is where the DeLorean would really come into play because I would like to go back and really try to understand why anyone would want someone to just stop brewing beer, even the pilgrims, because, you know, they drank it because, you know, life wasn't that awesome. Well, check this out. You'd pretty much live for beer, I think, if you were around Mm -hmm. back then. Some men didn't really believe that women brewers were witches. However, many did believe that women shouldn't be spending their time making beer. The process took time and dedication, hours to prepare the ale, sweep the floors clean, and lift heavy bundles of rye and grain. If women couldn't brew ale, they would have significantly more time at home to raise the children. There There it is. There it is. There There it is. There's a clock on the stove. (laughs) you're a dirty pirate hooker in the 1500s some towns such as chester england actually made it illegal for most women to sell beer worried that young ale wives would grow up into old spinsters first they're Mm. brewing beer in a cauldron then they're sleeping around town oh look three witches brewing beer oil toil Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. The iconography of witches with their pointy hats and cauldrons has endured, as has men's domination of the beer industry. Top 10 beer companies in the world are headed by male CEOs and have mostly male board members. Major beer companies have tended to portray beer as a drink for men. Some scholars have even gone as far as calling beer ads manuals on masculinity. This gender bias seems to persist in smaller craft breweries as well. A study at Stanford University found that while 17% of craft beer breweries have one female CEO, only 4% of these businesses employ a female brewmaster, the expert supervisor who oversees the brewing process. It doesn't have to be this way. For much of history, it wasn't. He's a witch! A witch! (laughs) I I love it. So this is the great part. This is the great part. If we want to dress up as a bunch of witches, we can actually get a cauldron. We can fill it with beer and we're Mm -hmm. being historically accurate. Mm -hmm. What's not to like? I learned something today. And if if anything, I'm sorry, if this show provides anything, it's knowledge. And I'm glad we're walking away with that. Insights. Insights unlocked, Leah. It's amazing, though. The drinks I drink throughout the show makes me immediately erase it. So I'm going to have to go back to this show later. The best of times. Also, it also shows you how dumb we generally are. Like, historically, it's a <laughs> moon put on a, a pointy hat and get out a cauldron, and we're like, witch! Demon! A witch! He's like, bitch, I'm just making you a drink for tomorrow. Calm down. <laughs> And what do we do with brewers? Burn them! It's hard to make the case the guys aren't just historically a bunch of assholes. They're just horrible. They're horrible. Whenever they're losing, they cheat. Anyway, that wraps up talking about Brown. Let's get to our top story. News team! Assemble! Let's get down, let's get down to business. And I got news for you. Leon, I'm putting you in the hot seat on this one. This one comes to us from Motherboard by Vice.com. Tenants are suing landlords for allegedly price-fixing rents with software, and the feds could get involved. Hmm. 
The Department of Justice has requested to participate in a lawsuit by tenants alleging that landlords colluded using RealPage. You know what RealPage is, Leon? Never used it. Again, nope. time to educate my man. RealPage software can artificially inflate rent. The article begins, a pair of lawsuits from tenants across the U.S. allege that landlords use rent-setting software to illegally collude and boost their rents. One lawsuit was filed in a district court in Tennessee and one in Washington. Both lawsuits were filed a year ago after a ProPublica investigation revealed that real estate software and analytics company RealPage has this rent-setting software, formerly called YieldStar, was artificially raising rents by sharing market data from competitors and setting prices for them, as well as sometimes encouraging landlords to leave units vacant. Over 20 lawsuits from renters across the country alleging RealPage committed antitrust violations were consolidated in April in Tennessee's Middle District, chosen for its central location. The United States Department of Justice filed a notice on October 17th, asking for permission to participate in oral arguments on December 11th. The court approved the government's request and the DOJ has until November 15th, just a mere 10 days from now, to submit a formal statement of intent if it wants to participate. Early reactions, Leon. Well, I think uh, actually the Yield Star did throw up a few flags because there's software we've used before to try to take a look at what the market's at. <clears throat> we purpose, everybody's got their, their spot in the market they like to be. You know, it's no different than when you go buy a house. The first thing you try to figure out are what are the comps, right? Mm -hmm. There's no difference in the rental industry where you're trying to find the comps. I don't, uh, our model is we like to be at or below the median price for rent. And that is because one, when my grandfather started the company, he was very intent on wanting the average person to be able to have a nice home they could call home, not just the rich people. And two, our model is based in such a way that we've chosen not to gouge on rent, but reduce turnover. You have to pick one. You have to pick one. If you want to be at the top, you have to offer tons and tons of amenities. You have to have offer you know, you, you've seen these ones, the Irvine mm -hmm. Company style, mm -hmm. where they got bars and stores inside. <laughs> they have, you know, marble countertops and everything like that. And and yeah, you're going to spend a lot more for that. But whenever I'm taking a look at what our expenses and input are, I want to make sure that I'm not exceeding that median line um, before we decide to establish what the new rents are, especially when you're watching. You know, raising rent, everyone thinks raising rent is something that we just enjoy doing. <laughs> we hate it. It is an incredible amount of work, uh, especially when you have to notify all the government ent entities that you're doing it. Uh, you ha it's a, you're inevitably going to have turnover with each rent raise because people get upset about it. And, um, and it, that's going to have costs involved. It, it's a, it's an incredible amount of paperwork and it's a lot of phone calls and angry people. It's no fun. So if you're going to go through that exercise, you better be damn sure you're, you're raising it to the point uh, that makes sense and that you haven't pushed yourself out of the point in the market. So where this article is seems to be zooming in is that 
it's a little bit like, you know, wag the tails wagging the dog here. Mm-hmm. And the price software is artificially increasing the rent. And when you see everybody in the market going up at that rate, it's, um, you know, they're just kind of keeping up with the Joneses. I feel like that's a little differently than the way we use it, but I can certainly see that happening. Um, although I think that's a really tough case to try to prove some kind of cartel about it. Well, let's get into some details. The real page class action complaint alleges that a cartel of landlords, quote, artificially inflated prices in the multifamily real estate market in the United States, unquote, using RealPage's software. Now called RealPage Revenue Management Software, the program relies on market data it collects as well as rental data input by landlords. While landlords should theoretically be competitors, in practice they would, quote, work with the community, unquote, as one landlord is quoted as saying in the complaint. The complaint alleges that RealPage requires its users to accept at least 80% of its rent recommendations and that users actually accept about 90%, giving RealPage market influence equal to its clients' combined units. But most of the controversial practice alleged in the complaint and laid out in the ProPublica report is that Yieldstar encouraged landlords to leave a certain amount of units vacant so that all the property managers using the service could artificially inflate. The goal was allegedly allegedly this. Collectively in the market, there is never an oversupply of available units artificially maintaining and inflating prices. RealPage also coached its landlords that this practice would allow them to sacrifice, quote, physical occupancy, quote, for, quote, economic occupancy, unquote. Yeah, I mean, if you are, artif- if you're purposely reporting or holding vacancies, which I think is a ridiculously dumb practice, <laughs> that's so dumb. Uh, but if that's something that's actually happening, fascinating. I mean, I, I just can't see it. You know, it's almost as if you would be suing Kelly Blue Book for giving the average prices that people are selling vehicles for. That's what that's like. This and is, everybody that's selling the, the vehicles it. all agrees to use that pricing system. Right. Uh, and it's being see. artificially <laughs> raised. Uh, they're also talking about, the article also quotes a, another class action by a company called Yardy. Same, same. Uh, while property managers who worked with Yardy are also accused of collusion in the complaint, this doesn't always mean they directly communicated. Like RealPage's program, the software relies on data from landlords who input rents in units they own, then get to see comparative rents in their area. Yardy then provides the landlord a recommendation for the units they own. Landlords boasted about the higher rents they charged with the software and Yardy's marketing. Brantley White, president of Ardmore Residential, was quoted in a 2016 Yardy press release saying, Rent Maximizer has allowed us to push rents more aggressively and takes more human error out of the process. While there's no data on how many households have rents set by Yardy software, an executive at the company claimed Yardy was used for 8 million residential units across the world. Mm-hmm. The attorneys also Yardy. ran an analysis of 23,000 households using Yardy to see if rents were higher and found they were 6% higher among units where landlords used the software in line with the company's marketing plan. What, are you, what is your thoughts? Because obviously I'm gated by it. Uh, anytime you have a collusion for price fixing, that's a no-no in terms of... Is that of, what you see here? 
That's what it seems like. I mean, it's so there's the theory that says the reason CEO compensation is going up across the board is the board gets together and they look at the median compensation of CEOs for similarly market cap companies, right? And they go, well, that's the median. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the middle. Our guy's not middle. We like him. So they inflate 10 or 15% above the median. And then all, most mm -hmm. of the boards do that. And eventually what happens is CEO compensation continues to get inflated in this manner because everybody in the board goes, no, no, they're doing a good job. Let's give them a little more than the median. And over time, the aggregate raises the median. And so it seems like this kind of either implicit or on purpose collusion kind of causes that. They all go, well, this is what rent is, so we got to keep up. But what the class action lawsuit alleges is that software is to blame. Did I catch that right? Yeah, I feel like that's what it's saying, but I don't understand why this, there are, every industry, I would argue, has some kind of tool that they use to help them understand where they should be priced and where competition is priced in the market. I just feel like this is zooming in on the rental market, but I just, I have a very hard time understanding why anyone would, would not want to know what competitors with similar or like products are pricing it at. So you can know whether or not where you, where you fall in the market. The main plaintiff in the lawsuit, Andrea Crook, rented from Mid-America Apartment Communities Incorporated, a publicly traded real, investment, real estate investment trust, or a REIT, based in Memphis that is named as a defendant in the suit, along with RealPage. Other large corporate landlords are named as defendants in the complaint, including Graystar and Cushman and Wakefield. Now, Cushman and Wakefield, I know because they do commercial property as well. But do you recognize any of these names, Leon? Mid-America or Graystar? Yeah. yeah. Actually, and Cushman and Wakefield, obviously. But mm -hmm. yeah. Let's, again, well, like I see it, it's the Kelly Blue Book for for the rental. So basically, market, they're they're so. suing Kelly Blue Book for publishing suggested retail price. That's right. Oh, that's what right. they're doing. I'll buy that for a dollar. Realtors are going to start making a lot less money. This is very, very, very related. So we're, we're talking about, you guys hear about the lawsuit? We did. They're no That's longer allowed to charge 6% or, or the seller yep. is no longer has to pay the buyer's agent. I'm all for it. I, I've met very few realtors that I ever liked. <laughs> and I think well, I think it, it makes it easier if you're a buying agent, because now the buying agent says, here's what I'm going to charge you to do the work for you. Rather right. than the buying agent is whatever you want, hundred percent, somebody else is paying me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it might change, it might change the terms of buying and selling, which could be interesting. Anyway, that wraps up our top story. Let's get to, let's get to some science technology space. Five, four, three, two, one. Science isn't about why, it's about why not. Science. Technology. Yes, science. Technology. Space. This one is brought to us from Reader's Digest. Hmm. Updated November 3rd, yesterday. So we're working with the most up-to-date information. This one was okay. interesting to me because I just realized recently that 
aluminum foil has two uses. Do you guys know this? Um, from some of the apartments I rent, uh, apparently it is a great uh, decoration to put around your stove. Fascinating. Tin, tin foil hats. I would love to pack you that with you. <laughs> My understanding is if you look at tin foil and you tear off a piece of it, there's a shiny side and kind of a matte side. So the glossy okay. side, if you will, is for heat. You put that around hot stuff to keep it hot. Flip it over, and the matte side or the less shiny side is for cold. You put that around cold to keep it cold. Apparently never this heard is that in thing. my life. I've never heard that in never my life either. That. Why did they put it in the fucking box? Yeah, that's that seems important. Anyway, neither here nor there. So wait, is the shiny part supposed to be facing the food? The shiny part faces the hot, hot you stuff. Keep it hot. And the unshiny part faces the cold stuff. And the cold, uh, because right. you can use hot or cold with foil, right? Me too. Right? That's not where we're here. Apparently, that's not where we're here. All right. Before we go to no, we gotta we gotta all right, unpack, all right, this all right. First. unpack it. Unpack it. We we are all avid barbecuers and smokers here for sure. When you wrap a brisket, are you using the shiny side towards the meat in this situation? Uh, well, the shiny side is to maintain heat, right? Yes. So that's what we like should the shiny be shiny side's always on the outside. Well, it's because it looks pretty and that's it why is, we do it that it way. Isn't, it yeah. isn't actually. It depends on the, on the foil. Like I, I went oh. and I looked immediately today. I went and I looked in preparation for the show and I went and I opened it up and the shiny side was on the inside. Get out of here. And what we see in the picture here is the shiny sides on the outside. So it depends. But either way, there's a shiny and a matte side. Right. And we're all in agreement from now on. The shiny side should be touching the meat. The shiny side is what it. you wrap your brisket in. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, I learned something today. That's what this podcast is about. You know what else is exciting? That has nothing to do with the story. Okay. Moving on. Why you should be putting aluminum foil behind your router. The silence tells me everything I need to know. This surprising hack could be the remedy when your Wi-Fi throws a buffering tantrum, but is it the real deal or just another tech myth? The article begins, imagine that it's a cozy Friday night at home and you're all settled in to binge watch your favorite show. You've got your snacks lined up, your comfiest blanket at the ready and the perfect spot on the couch. There's just one problem. Your Wi-Fi fucking sucks. Mm. In this age of instant streaming and virtual meetings, all of us are sadly way too familiar with that dreaded spinning wheel. Motherfucking latency. The bane of our existence. But what if I told you there's a science-approved tech tip that promises to put an end to your Wi-Fi woes, and the solution is a household staple that's probably sitting in your kitchen right now. Yes, you that read right. Turns out boosting your Wi-Fi signal is one of many fascinating aluminum foil uses you never knew about. To get the inside scoop, I asked an expert to explain how this trick works and even grabbed my lab coat, a.k.a. my pajamas, to test it out. Thanks to a strategically placed sheet of aluminum foil, you just may be one step closer to banishing sluggish internet connections for good. Shit's getting good, right? Yep. All right. How can aluminum foil boost a Wi-Fi signal? The way this hack works is shockingly simple, but first you need a little background on Wi-Fi. They come from the antenna on your router, which creates the connection with your smartphone, computer, and other internet-connected electronics. To reach all the devices in your home, 
These signals behave like radio or light waves spreading out to cover every available space, like a sprinkler head spraying water in all directions. According to tech expert James McQuiggan, security awareness advocate of the online security platform Know Before. Unfortunately, this can make the signals less efficient, weaken the connection, and be one of the reasons your internet is slow. Not only does it send Wi-Fi signals to parts of your home where you don't need it, but it can also lead to dead zones in certain areas where the signals can't reach or are blocked by large obstructions like walls or floors. By placing a curved sheet of aluminum foil around the router, you can shape the flow of the Wi-Fi signals more effectively. The shiny side, the heat side, will reflect the beams coming from the antenna and point them at a specific place. From there, all you have to do is adjust the direction of the foil's curve to steer the signal towards the parts of your home where you need better internet connection, like That's amazing. your living room, bedroom, or office, and direct it away from spots where it could be wasted, like a window. So think of it like a satellite dish. Redirect. I'm doing it tonight. If you think this trick sounds too good to be true, we don't blame you. But don't just take our word for it. Researchers at Dartmouth College vouch for it. When they tried it out for themselves, they found that using a reflective curved surface like a soda can or a piece of aluminum foil could strengthen Wi-Fi signals in some spaces and weaken it in others, maximizing the coverage's overall efficiency. Still skeptical? In their paper, the researchers reported that their 3D printed shape covered in aluminum foil, which they designed to match the specific Wi-Fi needs of the room, was able to boost wireless signals by up to 55.1%. I'm totally doing that in my office. As well as reduce them by up to 63.3% in spots where Wi-Fi wasn't needed. Now, the question may be, are there benefits to using aluminum foil? Strengthening your Wi-Fi speed isn't the only perk in this handy hack. It can also boost your online security, according to Dartmouth researchers. By limiting the reach of your Wi-Fi's beams to the areas where you actually use it, you can reduce the risk that hackers will access the signal and attempt to steal your data. Such physical confinement of wireless signals serves as a complementary method to existing network security measures, such as encryption, and hence raises the barrier for attackers. Now, I remember we talked about this in a previous episode. Your mm -hmm. Wi-Fi is effectively sonar. You guys remember that? Remember yep. that segment? Yes. So the idea here is the foil redirects the signal, messes with the sonar aspect of what the router can do. So it simultaneously kills the areas where you don't want the signal to go, boosts the areas where you do, and it strengthens security. Happy time. Now, how? Gather your materials. Find a roll of aluminum foil, cut a sheet to be approximately a foot long, and the height of your router. If your router has a physical antenna extending from the top, make sure the foil reaches a few inches above it. Bend the foil to create a C shape with the shiny side of the foil facing inside the curve. For routers with outer antennas, you might need to fold the top so that it covers the antenna also. Position the foil behind your router with the curved portion facing toward the router and the target area where you want to boost your signal. You might need to fold the bottom part so that the aluminum foil can stand upright unless you have a certain mounting characteristic on your router. And then check your speed. Do yourself one of those UCLA speed tests or whatever method you have with your router software. Now, can you use other household staples? Yes. Other common household metals, such as steel, copper baking sheets, soda, beer cans, equally effective. Just make sure to position them so that the curved 
reflective part paces towards the area in your home where you want to amplify the Wi-Fi. The author goes on to say, I use it at home and it works. No, it didn't work. Though it didn't quite work for me, it can't hurt to give this trick a shot before forking over significant cash for a Wi-Fi extender if you're having internet connection problems. After all, it did work for the Dartmouth researchers. I would venture to guess that this hack might be more effective at improving your internet speeds depending on the size of your space, the number and type of obstructions between your router and device, and your internet plan. Well, I'm going to give it a try. I think we should have a uh, follow-up episode. I like it. Uh, Mr. McQuiggan notes that there are plenty of other fixes. If you can't do foil, you can also place your router in a central elevated location in your home without obstructions. You can also try other solutions such as rebooting your router, checking the national broadband map to improve your connection when you're having an issue. Otherwise, Ooh, the old IT. Have you tried restarting it? Have you tried turning it back restarting on? it? <laughs> Otherwise, no, that's why I got on the phone with you, you idiot. <laughs> James McQuiggan is a security awareness advocate for No Before and a part time faculty professor at Valencia College in the Engineering, Computer Programming, and Technology Division. That wraps up science, technology, space. Let's do, uh, let's do a little adulting. How old are you guys? We're not fucking kids anymore. On a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your pain? Everything hurts. I'm a grown ass man, dog. I pay taxes here, fucker. We're not like you. We're grown ups, motherfucker. When 900 years old, you reach look as good you are not. Hmm? Night's adulting comes to us from NBC News. Snoozers rejoice. Here's why hitting that little button might be beneficial. Oh. Research. Oh. Researchers in Sweden asked people to spend several nights in a sleep lab and then hit snooze on their alarms in the morning. This one's dated October 18th, 2023. If you're concerned that by hitting the snooze button multiple times in the morning, you can be hurting your sleep, you can sleep easy. For most people, snoozing has no impact on sleep quality, a new study suggests. What's more, for some, hitting the button multiple times over 30 minutes may spark alertness more quickly than sleeping through without a break, according to the study published Wednesday in the Journal of Sleep Research. The study found that snoozing for 30 minutes in the morning does not make you more tired or more likely to wake up from deep sleep, study's lead author Tina Sundelin, associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Stockholm University in Sweden, said in an email, for those who usually snooze, it might even be helpful with waking. Among the 1,732 adults who filled out a questionnaire about their waking habits in the morning, 69% said they hit the snooze button at least sometimes. 69! Many, 60%, said they most often or always fell asleep between alarms, the result being that on average, snoozers get just a little less sleep. Overall, snoozers were more likely to be an average of six years younger than non-snoozers, and almost four times more likely to be night owls. Snoozers were also three times more likely to report feeling drowsy when they woke up. The top reason for choosing to snooze rather than have an unbroken stretch of sleep was that a person couldn't wake up or was too tired. The next two most common reasons were that snoozing feels good and that it allows a person to wake up more slowly or, quote, softly, unquote. 
So the researchers I, have, recruited, I, I would like to weigh in on this. Can I weigh in at this go, point? Please go, go. So I don't know if it, we did it on this the pod or not, but I know we've had conversations about this. And this is completely contradictory to what I know to be true based on other research. Oh. And they said that, uh, what is it? It takes 40 minutes-ish for a REM cycle. Right. And if you break the REM cycle, that makes you tired. That's bad. Yep. So, so if you are snoozing for nine minutes or 10 minutes or 12 minutes, there's no possible way you can start a REM cycle, but then you're interrupting it again. And therefore, when you wake up, you're even more tired and you're cranky and you are trying to recover from the broken REM that you had this entire time. That's, other studies that I've heard the fact that this one says go ahead and snooze away because I feel horribly guilty but I completely empathize with the waking up more slowly or softly because I have to convince myself my brain get your ass up and if if it takes a compromise to say I will just in 10 minutes like you're literally arguing with yourself like I will get up I just need 10 more minutes just sit here and slowly let things wake up and then I'll go ahead and get up. Well, you're so not I, actually I entering REM then that. because your average sleep is between seven and nine minutes, right? Well, I mean, you enter REM, but you don't complete it. So you interrupt it, which makes you more tired. Huh. Well, researchers recruited 31 people to spend several nights in a sleep lab. Average age 27, none had any sleep disorders such as insomnia. On two different nights, the participants were asked to try two methods of waking up, either getting up immediately after the alarm went off or 30 minutes after the alarm went off, pressing the snooze button three times. Total number of hours spent in bed was the same, regardless of whether a person snoozed or not. For example, when the participants were asked to snooze, the first alarm was set 30 minutes before the participants would usually get up. All right. So this is interesting. Your sleep window is the same. So did you interrupt them 30 minutes early with a series of snoozes or did you let them sleep all the way through? When the people were told to hit the snooze button, they got six minutes less sleep on average, the study found, but the overall structure of their sleep was the same. The participants' cognitive abilities were tested right after they got out of bed and then again 40 minutes later. When it came to performance on cognitive tests, including recalling past experiences, testing reaction times, and solving math problems quickly, snoozing appeared to give an advantage right after people rose, but that advantage disappeared within 40 minutes. When snoozing, as opposed to when having to wake up right away, I would say that they came to alertness quicker even though there was no difference in how sleepy or alert they felt subjectively, said Sunderland. It's possible that snoozing is preferable to some people because it spreads out the process of waking up, said Marie-Pierre Saint-Ange, the director of the Center of Excellence for Sleep and Circadian Research at Columbia's Universities. I'm going to start over. The director, <laughs> this is a title. We all wish to have this title. This is Lands and Titles right here. The director of the Center of Excellence for Sleep and Circadian Research at Columbia University's Vagalos College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York City. 
Wow, that is a business card. It's a fucking title. I'm going to say it again. Marie-Pierre Saint-Ange, the director of the Center of Excellence for Sleep and Circadian Research at Columbia University's Vagalos College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York City. (laughs) (laughs) And they have just said, and they have just said sleep expert. Yo, that's the most pretentious bullshit I've ever heard in my life. Her friends call her Marie. People who snooze for 30 minutes are actually falling back to sleep between alarms. Not a deep slip, but a light slip, so that when they had to wake up at the end of 30 minutes, they were not being yanked out of a deeper stage of sleep. They might have felt this was a more gentle awakening. Yeah, I buy that. Who snoozes for 30 minutes? It's a study. It's for, sci- it's for science. Okay. All right. Science. The people in the second study were all confirmed snoozers, adding that it might be interesting to run the same experiment with people who typically choose not to snooze. Ah, so if you're not a snoozer, will you get separate results? Mm-hmm. Jury's still up. Dr. Meth. Dr. Said meth. Meth. Ha. Hmm? Dr. Beth Mallow, the director of the Sleep Disorders Division and a professor of neurology and pediatrics at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, to two of the reasons for choosing to snooze that it, one, feels good, that it allowed people to wake up more softly or intriguing. It may be that by waking up in stages, a person avoids being pulled out of REM. Well done, Leon. It may be that by waking up in stages, a person avoids being pulled out of REM, said Mallow, who also wasn't involved in the new research. You might have a harder time if you're coming out of a dream. That can be very jolting. It's not surprising that snoozing is more common among young people because we already know that sleep cycles are shifted later in teens and young adults, adding that it may be that snoozers stop snoozing as they get older. I'm going to say that one again. Lies. For those of you bobs out there, it's not surprising that snoozing is more common among young people because we already know that sleep cycles are shifted later in teens and young adults, adding that it may be that snoozers stop snoozing as they get older. All right, let's hear your wake-up routines. What do you guys do? I get up at the alarm. At just one alarm and you're up? I never used to. Yeah? Mitch? I'm usually awake well, like an hour or more before the alarm even goes off. I hate it, but that's... Wow. That's just, that's just the way it is. You're one of those. I have an alarm at 5.30, and I have an alarm at 6.30. And the 5.30 one is my favorite one. It goes off and I'm like, okay, I got a full hour. It's the most fulfilling hour. It's like dessert after a meal. You're like, yep, (laughs) I want to enjoy this hour. I know where it is. And it it resets my brain to know I got an hour to sleep. And I do. And then I'm good to go. But if I don't have that, if it's straight alarm and go for a normal workday, average thing that is that is a nightmare now if it's for like golf or fishing i don't care i'm up i'm excited to do it so, so you set an alarm only to go back to sleep for an hour mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. i do that and sometimes i pull a midge and i wake up before that alarm and i turn it off because the sound of it is awful but 
and that makes me feel better. But still, I know I get a whole nother hour of sleep and that is really fulfilling. And the reason I did that is because the other study I told you about, which is REM takes 40 something minutes. So Hmm. I want another REM cycle and then I'll wake up. I've known you long enough to trust you. Very exciting. Well, I mean, I'm in perfect health. So clearly, of course. Yeah. And you look good. (laughs) That wraps up adulting. Let's finish with some happy times. Uh, sidebar on this one. Have you guys seen the latest tequila that's being released by McConaughey? Mm-hmm. It's the ad is a picture of him and a very lovely lady with dark hair riding quads in the desert and they have no pants on. And the private God parts are blurred out and the tequila is called Pantalonis Tequila. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, maybe that should go at the front of the show. If my enter was Pantalones. Pantalones. Pantalones That's his. That's it. I saw Pantalones at the store the other day. And I'm like, what a fucking great name for tequila. See how the the genitals are blurred out? Oh. That's awesome. Pantalones tequila. He already has Long Branch. How many fucking boozes does he need? Wow. How many boozes do you need? Quitter. Um, Mr. Soderbergh, I think uh, today's uh, scene would be an excellent opportunity for me to take my shirt off. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> wow. The man. I called this one junk in the agave. Post this in the notes. All the bobs need to see it. <laughs> Done, sir. It looks like Selma Hayek next to him. Might be his wife. Tonight's Happy Times doing? comes to us from CNN. This one is dated October 25th, 2023. Father and son make Halloween accessible to kids with disabilities one custom costume at a time. These are the special people. This is walking and rolling costumes. And they do, very specifically, costumes for kids in wheelchairs. The article begins, From festive decorations to trick-or-treating, 18-year-old Reese Davis has always loved Halloween. But for him, dressing up was more than fun. It was a way to fit in. Halloween was like the main time that I was just like everyone else. The high school senior explains, I just had a cool costume, and so it made me feel like I belonged more. I was more normal to other kids instead of always being the kid in the wheelchair. When Reese asked his dad, Lon, to make his first wheelchair costume 15 years ago, neither had any idea the doors would open for Reese and kids like him across the country. Today... Their work has inspired a growing movement for more inclusion and accessibility in Halloween. My wheelchair is a part of me, quote unquote. Reese was born with stage four neuroblastoma, a rare cancer in young children, and the tumor in his neck crushed his spinal cord. In remission since his first birthday, Reese got his first wheelchair at three years old, same year he started preschool. But the other kids in his class didn't know how to interact with him in his chair and stayed away. 
For the school's Halloween parade, Reese wanted to dress up as the Pixar robot Wally, but there weren't any pre-made, excessively designed costumes available. Reese and Lon realized they'd have to make their own, with one requirement from the adamant little boy. He told me that, you know, you can't just make a costume for me. It has to go around my wheelchair because my wheelchair is a part of me. It kind of stuck in my head for a while that he thought of himself as one with the chair. While Lon has studied 2D drawing in college, building in 3D was entirely new to him. Determined to figure it out, he learned on the fly, getting creative with a cardboard computer box and some paint. Awesome. When it came time for the big reveal at school, Lon remembers Reese only got about two feet into the classroom before all the kids swarmed him to marvel at his costume. They fought over who would sit next to him, play with him, and eat with him at snack time. Reese just felt like he was the most popular kid in the class. It was the first time he'd ever felt that way. But would it last? Lon and Reese's teachers braced themselves for the Halloween fervor to die down. What ended up happening in that November first game around, he was now just thought of as another kid in class. They were his friends then. And that costume ended up being kind of the icebreaker that really showed the other kids that he's just another kid. Reese's costume became something his new friends looked forward to every fall, and they didn't see the wheelchair as much anymore. Can you build one for my kid? Quote, unquote. Photos of Reese's costume quickly made their way across social media, grabbing attention of complete strangers across the country. We were starting to get contacted by families we didn't know, and they're like, can you build one for us? And at first, we just didn't think anything of it. But requests poured in again the following year after Reese's homemade Buzz Lightyear costume went viral. When Reese turned 10, he told his dad he wanted to start making costumes for other kids in wheelchairs and walkers. With the cost of materials alone averaging $250 per costume, they pursued the nonprofit route so families wouldn't have to bear the financial burden. Reese and Lon launched a Kickstarter campaign. They had no idea they'd meet their fundraising goal in only two days, let alone raise enough money to make more than double the number of costumes they initially intended. We just built them out of our garage, just trying to keep up with the demand. And we had so many requests for costumes that we barely put a dent in the number of requests. And the picture here is of Cinderella's carriage, which is a very popular. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Oh, big. That's elaborate. Earlier this month, Walken and Roland Costumes unveiled its 150th costume since launching in 2015. Each one is a labor of love, taking at least three months to build. The deadline to request a costume for this Halloween was August 1st. We can't mass produce them, Reese explains. These costumes are specifically built for the child's wheelchair. Each wheelchair is different because of the child's needs. The nonprofit also considers the size of the family's car and the amount of storage space they have at home. Even though every costume is tailor-made, all of them abide by three functional rules. First, the costume has to be lightweight since most of the recipients use manual, non-motorized chairs they propel themselves. Next, the costume must be easy to get in and out of so parents can quickly help kids get to the restroom or transfer to a different chair. And finally, the costume should fit their doors. A lesson Lon and Reese learned trick-or-treating with that first Wally costume. If they can't throw a door with it, we completely alienated them and done exactly the opposite of what we wanted to do. We want them to be included. We want them to be part of everything that is part of Halloween, which means it's a balancing act. So we've got some renderings of the Ghostbuster mobile. Oh, that's sick. 
This mm-hmm. one's an F-14 Tomcat. And of course, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Man. Love it. They're very creative. Good for them. Reese is excited to start another WRC chapter next year in the University of Arizona, where he's heading on a wheelchair rugby scholarship. Inspired. Back that one up. Excuse me. That was a sneeze. That was a sneeze, everyone. (laughs) Reese. (laughs) That was a Peter Griffin laugh. Please record that and use it for a soundbite forever. (laughs) Save a clip. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm fat. Reese is excited to start another WRC chapter next year at the University of Arizona, where he's heading to on a wheelchair rugby scholarship. Fucking kids impressive. Good for him. Inspired by his years of designing and building costumes, he plans to study engineering. His goal is to work for Disney to help make their theme parks more accessible. Lon is incredibly proud of his son, and while Reese is away, he'll continue to help other kids in need. As for his dream... I would love to get to a point where we have enough volunteers, enough money that we can actually build every costume that is requested. Well done, guys. You're doing the Lord's work. That's awesome. Walking and rolling costumes. Look it up on your search browser. Very cool. That is our show. You can email us at bottleofbrown at gmail.com or give us a call at 602-529-4562. Leave a message for Danny, Leon, the Midge, or Mr. Jones, or any of our special guests. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't like. We want to hear from you. If you like our show, please give us a five-star review on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend. Every positive review makes it easier for others to find the show and join the Bob community. We're on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share a quiet drink with us next episode. Same brown time, same brown channel. Bottleofbrown.com. place is dead anyway, man. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw the text, but I was wondering if you were super high tonight, Mitch. <laughs> no, you I wasn't. Look, I'm just tired. You yeah, look I'm at tired. Yeah. Like, I think you could in, I think you could eat an entire pizza or bag of Funyuns at this point. <laughs>